I was talking to her, not everybody else. <laughs> it, just, it just went quiet. I said, settle down, and everybody went. <laughs> All right, let's sing the hymn. 539, 1, 2, and 4. Christ is the world's redeemer, the lover of the pure, the font of heavenly wisdom, our trust and hope secure. The armor of his soldiers, the Lord of earth and sky, our health while we are living, our life when we shall die. Christ has our host surrounded with clouds of martyrs bright who wave their palms in triumph and fire us for the fight. Then Christ the cross ascended to save a world undone and suffering for the sinful our full redemption won. Glory to God the Father, the unbegotten one, all honor be to Jesus, his soul-begotten Son. And to the Holy Spirit, the perfect Trinity, let all the worlds give answer. Amen, so let it be. Let us pray. <clears throat> Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O God, by your mercy, strengthen us who lie exposed to the rough storms of troubles and temptations. Help us against our own negligence and cowardice, and defend us from the treachery of our unfaithful hearts. Succor us, we beseech you, and bring us to your safe haven of peace and felicity. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Isn't that a nice prayer by St. Augustine? I like that. How often do you pray a prayer where you pray for felicity? That's nice. Yeah, or even succor. That's right. You know, we've lost a lot of good words in this language. <laughs> I say make English great again. Okay, let's speak the verse of the week. Psalm 1912 in the Congregation at Prayer. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. What does it mean to understand? Specifically in this context, to understand his errors. But I mean, but what does it mean to understand? What is the meaning of that word? Comprehend. Yes, you're on the right track. Yes, that's quite a bit closer. Realize the depth is what she said. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give it this definition for you. To see and to know the depth and fullness 
of both error and consequence. And when I say consequence, I don't mean the consequences that you incur from having done something uh, wrong, from having made an error. What I mean by the consequences is instead the consequences of your act on others. All of this is stuff we talked about actually just yesterday in Catechumenate, but one of the things is that you are never fully aware of the hurt that your words or deeds or thoughts or lack thereof can cause another person. Sit down. So when you understand your errors, it does not just mean, oh, I realize I've done something wrong. It means that you know to the fullest degree the entire depth of what you have done and the butterfly effect of what that thing you have done has now caused within the world to those around you. And then, of course, the answer to the question, when you, under, when, you, when you understand it in this sense, who can understand his errors? Who really can see and know the depth and fullness of their error and all of its consequence in this world? Who can know that? Nobody can. That's the point. Who can discern his errors? No one. That's why the Lutheran reformers used this particular verse in the Augsburg Confession and its apology as a defense of their confession practice, which does not mandate the enumeration of sins. That is to say, you don't have to go when you go to confession and remember absolutely every sin you have committed in your entire life and confess every single one of those before the priest. Because who can understand? How many errors do you commit that you're not even aware of? So then if we say you can't have your sins forgiven if you don't know exactly what it is you've done and confess it, all of the sins that you commit daily that you're entirely unaware of go unforgiven. And then what happens when, if all of that is unforgiven, what happens when Jesus comes back? Not a, not a good thing. So nobody truly understands his errors. Now you might know some of it, because the law reveals your sin to you. But then, I'm going to add this. Therefore, because I can't understand my errors, therefore, cleanse me from secret faults. The sins that I don't even know that I have committed and those whose gravity I am wholly unaware of. And then, of course, of course, this is the big request. Cleanse me. How does that happen? How does cleansing happen? No. You're not thinking the right way. Think of the Old Testament. Not by fire, no, by what comes out of a sacrifice? Blood. Blood. That's how you're cleansed. It goes against all human reason and logic because blood is a dirty thing. But blood is the thing that cleanses you. When you go to the temple, 
When you go to the temple and the priest makes the sacrifice and atones for sins and then comes out to pronounce absolution on the people, what does he do? Yes, he takes a big old bucket of blood and he puts a hyssop in it and he goes and he dumps blood on the people. And then they go away knowing that they are clean because the sacrifice has been made and they've been covered with the blood of the sacrifice. That's the thing. Think about why the Israelites are saved from the final plague in Egypt. What is it that saves them? The blood saves them. And what does Luther say in his great Easter hymn? Christ Jesus lay in death's strong bands. You know that hymn. What does he say? See his blood now marks our door. So that the blood of the Passover that once marked the physical door of a house now marks the door of your heart. You are covered in the blood of Jesus and are cleansed by it all of your sins with you. All right, let's say this again. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Uh, okay, which are these sins which we know and feel in our hearts? Consider your place in life according to the Ten Commandments. Are you a father, mother, son, daughter, husband, wife, or worker? Have you been disobedient, unfaithful, or lazy? Have you been someone by your words or deeds? Have you stolen, been negligent, wasted anything, or done any harm? Okay, so how do I know what I'm supposed to confess? What if I don't feel like I have any sin? Well, yeah, <laughs> then you confess that you don't feel like you have any sin. Uh, well, you can never really get away with saying, oh, I don't think I have anything to confess. Maybe you don't know anything that pops into your head immediately, but confession isn't something that you go to willy-nilly. It's something that you prepare for. And part of preparing to go to confession is taking a moment to stop and think and reflect and comparing your life with the law. So here's an example. This is not exhaustive. This is not exhaustive. I feel personally attacked. Good. When you come to church, you should feel personally attacked. Yes. Yes, you should. If the pastor says something in the sermon and it sounds like it was directed right to you and, was, and feels as though pastor has given you a verbal swift kick in the rear, don't complain about it. Take it for what it is and do something about it. Maybe you needed that swift kick in the rear. By the way, I will never, ever, and never have preached a sermon where I single out one person. So if you walk out feeling like you just got your butt chewed, it was the Holy Spirit that did it. And if the Spirit's going to do that to you, you might as well take note of that and maybe, just maybe, make an amendment to your life. Walking out of church and saying, I feel like God personally attacked me and therefore I'm not going to come back because I want blah, 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 blah. You know, that's not, that's not a receptive attitude to what Jesus wants to do for you, which is make you better. And you can't be made better if you don't realize that maybe there are some areas that aren't the best in your life. Go figure, what a novel concept. You mean you're not a perfect creature? Whoa. Okay, so just take one minute here. Maybe you feel like you don't have anything to confess. But look at this. Are you a father or a mother? Are you a son or a daughter? Now, right there, I've already gotten all of you. Because you may not be a father or a mother, but if you're alive, 
you are either a son or a daughter. Every one of you. All right, I've got you. All that I have to do then is have, ask you, have you been the best son or daughter? And if you say yes, then you can come to confession and confess lying. Because, <laughs> you know, we're never the best. Maybe I said something too harsh to one of my parents on the telephone. Whatever. Whatever it is, you're not, you're not going to be the best son or daughter. Are you, a, are you a husband or a wife? Are you a worker? Do you go to school and have homework from your teachers? Do you go to a job and have things you're supposed to do? Do you do your very best all of the time? You know. And then here is the big list. Have you been disobedient, unfaithful, or lazy? Probably all three. Have you been hot-tempered, rude, or quarrelsome? Yes. Have you hurt somebody by your words or deeds? I don't know, probably. Have you stolen, been negligent, wasted anything, or done any harm? Today we start the seventh commandment from the large catechism. So if you don't think you've stolen anything, be prepared to find out you have. <laughs> Oh, boy. Okay, so this is just an example of, of a preparation for confession. Uh, how do I know what sins I should confess? Which, well, the ones that you know and feel in your heart, well, what sins do I know and, and feel in my heart? The ones that the law convicts you of when you compare your life with what God asks you to be. All right, kids, you can go to Sunday school. Adults, I'm going to pass something around for you to look at. This is, this is um, an example of, again, exactly what I talked about in Catechumenate, if you were there yesterday. It's, it's, called a, it's called a confession mirror. The German is Beichtspiegel. I think that's right. You'll, you can correct me. I'm no expert in German by any means. <laughs> well, compared to me, friend. So what this is, is an early Lutheran practice of preparing for confession by looking at the Ten Commandments and doing exactly what the small catechism recommends that you do, but in a much grand, on a much grander scale. Uh, so for example, let's just do this because we were talking about the Fourth Commandment. I'll, let, me, let me begin. I'll, I'll read you some of these things. So you think, I've been a good son. I've been a good daughter. For children, how have I behaved toward my parents? Have I been loveless, unfriendly, unthankful, rude, rebellious, disobedient, or full of pride? Have I hurt their feelings? Have I wished them evil or despised them? What happens when you get grounded and you go to your room and close the door and mutter something under your breath? <gasps> Whoops. Didn't know that was part of the fourth commandment, did ya? <laughs> Have I helped them? Have I thanked them in my words and deeds? Have I prayed that God would give my parents the strength, knowledge, and desire to do what is best for me, even if I don't like it? Ooh, this is already pretty damning. Hey, don't worry, though. There's a part for parents, too. For parents and superiors, which means maybe you don't have children. Maybe it's just you. But if you have anybody under you in any kind of a position, are you a teacher? Do you have employees? Mm. Do people volunteer under you? Have I protected those entrusted to me from bad influences? Have I provided for them in all external things? Have I made time for them? That's a, that's a pretty damning one. Have I made time for them? I would alter that ever so slightly and say, have I eaten a family meal? Have I made time to think about them? 
Have I been a good example for them? Have I been impatient, hot-tempered, rude, or unfair? Have I shown preference to someone? Have I prayed for the Lord to guide my words and actions? Has I, have I become exasperated and wished that I did not have children or responsibility for those whom God gave me? Now let's be real. How many parents have not wished, even for a split second, that they didn't have the child that they had that was causing them trouble. So, there you go. That's just the fourth commandment. And this is a short one. But it's, this is all the commandments, and there are all of these things. And then there's even, there's even a section on how to prepare and a section on general summary questions about just living the Christian life to help you to prepare for confession to answer that question, which are those sins which I know and feel in my heart and therefore should bring to confession? So I'll just pass this around and you can take some time to look at it if you're interested. This is not a historical document, but it's modeled after a historical document from the early Lutherans of the 16th century. So there's a long-standing practice here in the Lutheran Church with a document like this, of course, drawn from the small catechism. So any questions about the verse or the catechism for the week? All right, you're all smart people. This one's not so hard, pretty straightforward. Okay, seventh commandment. If you don't have a handout, there are some in the back. You don't have a handout. Does anybody else not have a handout? Well, I was going to have a nice person in the back bring some forward. Are you sure you don't want that? Are you sure? <laughs> okay. All right. All right, very good. So, first thing I want to do is point out something to you. Now, you, you might not know this, but the original large catechism, or actually I think it might have been the small catechism, yeah, der kleine catechismus. That's little, right, kleine? Yeah, so that's the small catechism. So the original small catechism had these woodcuts, and the idea behind that was very much the same as the idea of what is called the Peasant's Bible. Have you ever heard of the Peasant's Bible? Heard of it, but I don't know what it is. Oh boy, you are in for a treat. Oh, I should have gotten some pictures of it to show you. Oh well, another time. The Peasant's Bible was this medieval Bible that was, of course, as the name would suggest, intended for peasants. The hoi polloi the farm folk, okay, the peasants. Why? Because the peasants don't go to school and they don't know how to read. So how do you teach the Bible to people who don't know how to read? Pictures. Yes, picture books are not just for children. So what the peasants Bible did was it presented a whole bunch of narratives from the Bible as pictures, but it did it in a really, really neat way where it showed you an Old Testament something and then its New Testament companion. And then in the middle, there was something like a prophecy about it. So you could see, this is, you're learning a story from the Old Testament, a story from the New Testament, and a little prophecy about the story. But you're also learning that the Old Testament and the New Testament are connected like this, and that what the, what the, what the work is that Jesus does is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That Jesus is the, is the antitype, and that the characters in the Old Testament are the types. They are the things that point ahead to something greater. So an example would be uh, um, something like Naaman, the Syrian leper, who goes to wash in the Jordan and then washes how many times? Seven times. It's not an accident. Washes seven times and then comes out and his leprosy is cleansed. And then you, so you have something like that juxtaposed with 
Jesus' baptism in the Jordan. Because when Jesus goes into the Jordan, he purifies all water to be baptismal water. Remember what happens in baptism is the same kind of thing that happens in confession, giving up, taking up. When you go into baptismal water, you get clean, but the dirt has to go somewhere. You know, when your kids are outside playing all day in the summer and they go into the tub and that water turns that sort of gray color. And that's how you know that there are good summer days when the bathwater is that brown gray. Although it means more work because it leaves that ring. <laughs> but that water gets that brown-gray color. The kids come out clean, but the water's dirty. That's what baptism is. You go into the water, and you come out clean, but the water gets dirty. But when Jesus goes into the water, it's exactly the opposite of what happens to you. Jesus is clean when he gets into the water, but he's like a sponge, and he soaks up all of the dirt in the water, and he takes it on himself. So Naaman goes into the water with leprosy and he comes out clean. Jesus goes in clean and comes out with leprosy. I mean, he doesn't literally come out with leprosy, but he comes out with the sins of the world. Where is it that the sin of the world is put on Jesus? John the baptizer says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But where do all the sins of the world get put on him? In his baptism. And then he goes straight from the baptism into the wilderness to be tempted. Now he's got sins born. Now he's got a heavy burden. <coughs> See how that works? So that's what the Peasant's Bible did, was it taught the faith, but more than just stories. It taught about the connection of the two and types and the antitype in pictures. So the small catechism did very much the same thing. Uh, here is one of the original woodcuts from the small catechism. And what this depicts, now I don't know, I tried to make this as big as I dared um, to still fit text in here. So you might have to kind of get it close to your face. So this is the story of uh, Akan in the book of Judges. You probably don't even know that story. Here you go. The picture is doing its job. It's teaching you something. I put in a reference here in the little note about the picture. This is from Judges 7. So, you know, when you get home tonight, grab the Bible and look up Judges 7 and read the story of Akan. But what happens is that they go and, and Akan takes spoils from the battle and he does something he's not supposed to do. He steals goods and then he runs to his tent and this is this is in the right hand side you see there's the tent and there's the guy inside of it that's Akan and Akan is hiding what he has stolen so that nobody will find it and then right here in the foreground Akan is the one with the pointy hat art is always reflective of the times so medieval art makes all of the Bible characters look medieval like the medieval depictions of the crucifixion have Jesus being crucified by people in shining armor. <laughs> you know, like King Arthur Knight style. Not by Romans because it's reflective of the times, the artwork is. So, you know, Akan is not dressed really in leggings and pointy hats. But here he is. And there he is, he's being confronted by Joshua. Who's saying, what have you done? You have brought destruction on the camp of Israel because of your sin. What have you done? Have you stolen? And then in the background, it's kind of small, so you maybe can't see. It's a whole bunch of people holding rocks because what happens to Akan? He's stoned. And this is again catechumenate. It's just like catechumenate friends get double dose this weekend. Why is stoning the punishment? Does anybody know why stoning is the punishment? Have you ever heard the phrase throwing the book at someone? What does that mean? What does it mean to throw the book at someone? You're a crook, 
Captain Huck. Judge, won't you throw the book? From the Peter Pan musical? <laughs> throw the book. What does it mean? Pardon me? It means more than just to tell them that they're guilty. What? Well, I mean the term throw out, throw in the book at someone. Don't get ahead of me. Yeah, you get what's coming to you according to the law. If I throw the book at you, then the law that is on the books is going to hit you with full force. Now, think about the Old Testament. What is the law? No, you're fine. The Ten Commandments. And what are the Ten Commandments written on? Stone. So, the full force of the law, which does what to sin? What does the law do to sin? Mm, okay, it does reveal it. Oh, yes. All right. That was just a bad question. Let me ask it this way. If you are unholy and you stand in the presence of holiness, what happens to you? See, if the midweek kids were here, they would know this because there's a, there's a sound effect and an action that goes with it. It goes like this. That's what happens to you. If you are unholy and you stand in the presence of holiness, you are just consumed, vaporized. Because unholiness cannot coexist with holiness. And holiness is good and it just consumes all wickedness and evil and unrighteousness. It's like, uh, you know, uh, the Raiders of the Lost Ark. You know what I'm talking about when they open up the ark. Okay, that's what happens. Now, I'm not going to say it looks exactly like that, but righteousness and holiness cannot coexist with unrighteousness. So, what does the law do to sin? It kills it. The law goes after sin like a wild dog, and it kills it. So, if you are a sinner and you've trespassed the law, the law will go after you in its full force and it will kill you because sin is always, sin, sin always and only ever brings death. It's not good for you, it kills you. And in this case, it is quite literally throwing the book because the law is written on stone. So you trespass the law and the law comes to get you in its own material. Stone. That's why stoning is the death. It's the punishment of the law, and it's symbolic in that way of what the law does to sin, and, and that the law cannot tolerate sin. Okay? So this is the little peasant's Bible-like image to show you the seventh commandment. I have that here for the history and because it's interesting. Oh, uh, maybe. That's what it looks like to me is Joshua. Oh, we were talking about the woodcut there. Yeah, it says yeah, it's Joshua. Joshua. Yeah. Well, let's get to the bottom of this. <laughs> yeah, I think that is that should be Joshua. Sorry. Guess pastor doesn't know the Bible. <laughs> yeah, right yeah, it's right there. Joshua seven ten. Joshua seven. So yeah, when you get home, open up your Bible to Joshua seven. Take your red pen out and correct the handout. You got more nerve than I've got. I didn't know. It's not a challenge. It's just a correction. That's fine. Look at that. That's what yes, yes, yes. You're all very smart. I made a mistake. <laughs> Forgive me, please. Oh, true. I would have gotten a thousand text messages. I can't find it. Are you sure that's Judges 7? Nope, I'm not. 
<laughs> All right. So here's the deal about the seventh commandment. Okay. There's, I want to look at one very particular aspect of this today. And, and if we have time, we'll move on. But I, I doubt that we will. Um, the seventh commandment, obviously, you know what it says. Uh, you shall not steal. And the most obvious, the most, the most obvious theft is this. Okay. But the Ten Commandments don't only deal with the most obvious. Uh, in fact, they cannot because they are all-encompassing. Any kind of sin falls under the Ten Commandments in some way or another, as does all forms of true, godly, righteous living. Those actually do all fall under the Ten Commandments as well, in the positive, not in the negative. So, the Seventh Commandment doesn't only deal with, with going out and blatantly taking something that does not belong to you, like what you see in New York City or San Francisco or Chicago. It also deals with any kind of an action that would affect the goods, the welfare, or the livelihood of your neighbor. That includes things like being wasteful, even of things like time. So say you're, you're working at your job and you're sitting around playing, I don't know, what do people play on their phones now? I don't know. Clash of Clans, do people still even play that? I don't know, whatever. I'll be, I'll be old. You're playing solitaire on your phone because you just don't feel like working. Or you're browsing Facebook or Pinterest or Instagram or whatever, TikTok, whatever else is out there. I don't even know. And you're doing that instead of really paying attention to doing your job, that actually is the seventh commandment because you are taking advantage of another person's goods and welfare by wasting time and not doing your job. And that's an aspect of the seventh commandment we don't really think about often. The large command, or excuse me, the large catechism really brings it out. So, uh, it's important to start with the idea of possessions. Possessions are a gift from God. Uh, and that's an important thing to realize. And of course, they are given, as we would say in the explanation of the uh, fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer, given for the support and needs of the body. So obviously, it's okay for there to be possessions. So, because these gifts are used for the support and needs of the body, there's a fifth commandment element here too. You know, don't harm your neighbor in his body. There's also a sixth commandment relationship here because that's about relationships, specifically of husband and wife, and the chastity uh, of, of the human body and the sanctity of it. And then the seventh commandment works to preserve all of those goods that kind of orbit around the sanctity of the person and the sanctity of the body and human sexuality. Then there are these, these goods. What do I need to be able to support my life? What do I need to be able to support my family and my friends and, and those kinds of things? So then that expands these rings out with the seventh commandment. Okay, so the first point here from the large catechism, and we're going to take a little bit of time with this. God is not against owning property. This might be a no-brainer to you, and if it is, I'm glad. <clears throat> but there is a little bit of a misnomer, or maybe it, there's a misunderstanding about the church and possessions or goods, and 
there's often the accusation leveled against Christians, either by other Christians or from the outside, that you're not supposed to have anything. You're not supposed to have possessions. You're supposed to give everything up. You're not, you, you know, be like a monk. Sell everything you have, have no earthly possessions at all. And, th and that just simply isn't right. God gives gifts in abundance. Why? Because he loves you. God gives you gifts because he loves you. And let's think for a minute, what does the first commandment deal with? Or excuse me, the first article of the creed, forgive me. What does the first article of the creed deal with? Yes. Creation. Creation, what goes along with creation? Yes, and? All house, home, wife, children, fields, cattle. Well, yeah, I mean, but I, what I mean is with the actual text of the explanation, I believe that God has made me and all creatures. He has given me my eyes, ears, mouth, nose, mm -hmm. all my all reason, reason and senses and all my members, and? Sustains. Sustains, or in the, the new translation, still takes care of them. I think sustains a better word, actually, but but he still takes care of them. He sustains them. He doesn't just create, and this is the problem with, say, the deists. Do you know what a deist is? A, what? a deist. You see God in everything. Uh, well, not exactly. A deist is somebody who believes that there is a God but that the God doesn't really reveal himself and that the God doesn't care about having a relationship and that he doesn't really do anything. He just kick-started creation and then stepped back and now creation is just running in a glass bottle on God's mantle. It's kind of like people now are talking about uh, intelligent design or didn't actually have a God create the world, but something happened that had that was it was designed to be where we are now. Yes. Do you know what a Newton's cradle is? A what? A Newton's cradle. Newton's cradle. You'd know what it was if you saw it. Newton's cradle is just that little physics device that people have on their desks where there's like eight little metal balls. And you pull one back and you let it go and the force travels through all of the balls to the other side. Like that. Well, that doesn't start moving on the other side unless something happens on the first side. The ball has to be pulled back and let go. And people are perhaps starting to realize that the idea of the Big Bang as it is presented simply doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? What do you have to have for the Big Bang to work as it is presented? And I say as it is presented because I don't know how it, what it looks like when God creates. And perhaps God, when God speaks, he does cause things to generate. I don't know. I wasn't there. But I mean how it is presented and taught. The very big... You have to have a mass to start with. You have to have mass because what causes the bang? Two things that crash. Two things that crash together cause an explosion. But then you say, but where did that come from? Where did space come from that they were flying through? There has to be some kind of cause. And so Christianity very often speaks of God as the cause, or they speak of God as the unmoved mover, because he is the one who does not move, but who pulls back the ball of the Newton cradle and lets it go, click, 
and then everything gets started. But it takes that initial to get things going, and that's God. Uh, I think Christians use intelligent design as, as a shorthand for the Lord is the one who created things. But I think it's hilarious that certain scientific communities also use the phrase intelligent design because they realize none of this actually works the way that we present it because it still begs the question, where did that come from? Where did the universe come from? Two, two, two particles that collided. But where did the particles come from? Uh, well, there were some things that, that collided. But where did those things come from? And, and where is the space that they're traveling? Like, nobody ever asked the question about where does space come from? You, don't, you cannot comprehend what nothing really is. Space isn't nothing. Space is still something. Because it's space. Yes, and how far does it go? Right, and how far does it go? Like your empty closet, you don't, you don't actually get to say, there's no, this is nothing. You don't go into this big walk-in closet. Maybe there's no clothes, no shoes, no nothing. But you can't look at it and say, this is nothing. Because you know what it is? It's space. And space, if there is space, then there cannot be nothing because there's space. Where does it come from? You can't answer the question unless you, in some way, speak of the intelligent design. And so I think it's hilarious that then we talk about, all right, all right, all right, all right. we'll give you that. They can't come from anywhere. So there has to be an intelligent design. So aliens came... <laughs> but then we have all the same questions. We're only answering on a very minute scale. Okay, yeah, aliens came and created Earth and seeded life here. Whatever. I don't, why are we even talking? Oh, first, because the first article, the first article. Hey, God creates. And he's not a deist who creates or this is also called the watchmaker God, because he builds a watch, and then he goes, and he takes a step back. He winds it, and then he takes a step back, and he just stands there, and he watches it go. And of course, it took somebody to make the watch and to wind it so that it could start working, but after that, he doesn't do anything. He just stands back. But that isn't what God is because he calls himself Father. And honestly, the word creator has significance to it as well, creator and father. The best example is one I've used before, and, and that is when you become a parent, you have inherent responsibilities to the child you have brought into the world. You cannot, and even the secular realm understands this, the, the laws on the books understand this, that when you are a parent, when you are a mother and a father, and you bring forth a child, you don't get to say, well, here I go out of the hospital, I brought you into this world, and now my duty's done, go fend for yourself, child, and may the strongest survive. You don't get to do that. Now the law says, after 18, sure. But, but in reality, you're eternally bound to your children. And they're always your children, even when they're grown-ups. They're still your children, you just can't claim them, you know. No more deductions <laughs> or benefits. <laughs> See, but then you get grandchildren, and those are benefits enough. So. There is a responsibility. So God is joined to his creation and he has a responsibility as creator and as father to continue to provide, which means that God is intimately involved in his creation. Even the lilies of the, fa of the, of the fields are clothed by him. So much love does he have for what he has made. And that means that when we speak of the first commandment and we say that he still sustains them, that includes then that he gives me what I need to be able to live. And because he's a loving father 
and every parent, I think, can resonate with this. You know, maybe we get them some things they don't need, but things that they would like. Maybe we spoil them a little bit. That's hard not to spoil kids when you're the parents, because all you want to, you parents know this, the only thing that you want to do is just get everything for your kids. Make sure that they have everything that they want, make sure they're always happy, and of course that doesn't end up always ending well. So you have to, you know, be a little bit disciplined about what you give. And then you get to be a grandparent, and then, well, all of that flies out the window, because you can do whatever you want. That's right, all bets are off. You don't have to suffer any consequences except for your son or daughter maybe calling you and saying, please stop giving them things. <laughs> and you could say, okay, sure. Here you go, kids. <laughs> yeah, all right, not until next time, that's right. Uh, I told you the story about business with my grandpa. He used to give us candy. We would go to their house. They only lived 15 minutes away, so we were always at my grandparents' house. And my grandpa would always, he'd go to the Sentry grocery store, and he'd go to the little candy aisle, and he'd, you know, use the scoops and put them in the little plastic bags. And then he'd, he'd keep it in the top drawer of his dresser. And then when we would come, he would pull out this drawer, and we would all lie down on our stomachs, and he'd get down too, and he'd open that bag, and everybody would got to get, reach in and pick a candy to take for the way home, that 15 minutes. And my dad said something, which, of course, you never do. He said, hey, you know, you know listen, Dave, the, uh, the kids are opening up their candies, you know, they're throwing the wrappers in the car, and you know, the sucker sticks are putting in, you know, going in the cup holders, and you know, maybe, maybe you know, we cannot have candy, or maybe they don't need that. And my grandpa said, oh, sure, 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 no. We won't have candy time anymore. And my dad said, oh, okay, th thanks, Dave. Uh, next time he went, grandpa said, all right, kids, well, it's time for you to go. Okay, well, well better come to my room and we'll, we got some business to take care of. <laughs> and, then, and then that's just what it was. Oh, time for business. And then, you know, you leave your business and what do you have? Candy. Oh, I wasn't giving them candy. We were just doing business and that was just a part of it, you know. So, <laughs> yeah, business. And then he would always say, good selection, good selection. You'd, you'd pick your candy. Oh, good selection. That was a good selection. <laughs> okay, so... The Lord provides and he provides in abundance. And then, again, going back to the fourth petition of the Lord's Prayer, that ties in with the first article because the Lord is bound to provide for you, which is in possessions. And then he will also, though, um, give you all of the things that you need to support this body and life, as we say in the Lord's Prayer. So then he, that's again, you know, give us this day our daily bread, all of these things and more. So he's not against owning property, but one of the things you might see that is absent here is the word private. See, because there's a difference between owning property and having private property and in the church. Why, do we make, why would we make a distinction about that, do you think? Think about the book of Acts, shall we? All these people become Christians, and what do they do? Share. They share what? All that they have. That's the beautiful thing about the gospel. It doesn't nullify the law, and it doesn't set you free from the law in the sense that all of a sudden the law doesn't matter. It sets you free from the limitations of the law. The law enslaves you to the bare minimum, but the gospel sets you free to abundance. You can only love to a degree if you're loving in the law, but you can love in abundance if you're loving in the gospel. And the beautiful thing about that is, what do you give to the church? Well, the Old Testament, what do you give to the church? 10%. But what do you see in the New Testament? What do they give to the church? 10 to 100%. Somewhere in between, because they're not bound to the minimum. Now it's Hey, we're free now. We're free to give in abundance. And the biggest thing is they had all things in common. What's the difference between Christianity and communism? Because this is an accusation hurled at Christians a lot. Well, you guys are basically communists. Why, do you, why don't you vote for the communists? Why don't you want communism in America? What's the difference between Christianity and communism? Yeah, the will, the intent, giving because you want to. Communism is coercion, but Christianity is an outpouring of love. That's the difference. 
You can't coerce someone into love. It, so the two end up looking similar, but are absolutely ideologically mutually exclusive. They don't work together at all. I give because I love. They take because they want. That's a difference. Um, so private property, though, and Thomas Aquinas talks about this. I did a whole bunch of work on this just for the first chapter of the Didache. God gives you possessions so that you can do what? Share with your neighbor. God gives you an abundance of this or that, and then you can live comfortably and enjoy your life here, but also share that with your neighbor. So your goods are not yours just for you, even though the Lord gives them to you. They're yours to have and to enjoy and to share. So I want to look at a couple things here. Because the Catechism says there's only one quote here because the rest of them don't matter. God also wants property protected, says the large Catechism. So two, two places I'd like to look at in Genesis and then actually, actually three. Would you repeat what you said there? Your, your statement, your quote? Oh, God, God also... God also wants property protected. Yes, that's, in, that's just a quote right from the large catechism. In fact, that's right at the very beginning. God also wants property protected. He wants life protected. He wants the sanctity of marriage, the sanctity of the human body and human sexuality, and the relationships between husband and wife. He wants all of that protected, but he also wants property protected because his property is gift. There's a whole bunch there. Uh, Genesis 13 is where I want to look really quickly. Um, but God gives gifts to every individual. So the thing about the ninth and the 10th commandments is you should be content with what God gives you because he'll always give you, give you what is good for you. But what is good and right for you is not what is good and right for your neighbor down the street. Why are, do you, why are you pulling, I don't know, 40,000 on a teacher's salary when your next door neighbor is pulling in 1.3 mil as a software engineer? Where's the fairness in that? Well, life isn't fair, get over it. The better thing is, did I say something funny? You know, life's not fair. Get over it. God's unfair. God sent his son to die for your sins. That's not fair. You want a fair God? You're dead if you have a fair God. You don't want a God that's fair. You want an unfair God because it's for your advantage. Okay? So, where's the, where's the justice in the fact that you're making less money than your neighbor? Your and your neighbor squanders it. You know, if I had that kind of money, what think of the things that I could do? Think of the books we'd have in that library if I was pointing, pulling in 1.5 mil. So let's pony up the given, all right? <laughs> that was just a joke. Nobody hardly laughed. Uh, well, maybe having $1.5 million isn't something that's good for you. The Lord will always give you what is good for you. And what is good for you may not be the same as for another person. And your call is not to look over the fence at what neighbor Johnson's doing and just be content with where you are and with what you have and, and appreciate everything that you have as a gift from God. But God will give this gift to everybody and you don't have the right, this is part of what the seventh commandment deals with, you don't have the right to try to cheat somebody else out of the gift that God has given them. It's like the birthright. Esau sells his birthright for a bowl of soup? I mean, he really had no right to do that at all because his birthright isn't something he earned. It's something that's gift. You don't have the right to negotiate the terms. I get what I get as gift, he gets what he gets as gift, and we all should be happy that the Lord deals with us with grace and mercy and gives us gifts, and then use our gifts to help other people. 
I had a pastor friend and he's, he said he's got a couple really wealthy people in his congregation and they came to him and they said, well, pastor, we just don't know what our spiritual gifts are. And he said, uh, I know what your spiritual gift is. Your spiritual gift is making money. So just keep going out and making money and then helping people with the money that you're making. And they said, oh, we never thought of that. <laughs> Go keep buying food for the food pantry or giving a good tithe to church or putting money away for a hospitality fund. Like sometimes just making money and having that money is your spiritual gift because then you use it for the benefit of your neighbor. And maybe you're the best person to have that money to be able to help your neighbor, and maybe you're not. Maybe you're like me, and if you had $1.5 million today, it'd be gone by tomorrow. <laughs> That's why I have a wife who keeps the books and is very good at it, because, woo, I cannot do it. Okay, so two quick, uh, th three quick things. So Abraham went, excuse me, Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him, his nephew, to the south. Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And where did it come from? His good investments <laughs> comes from the Lord. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Lot also, who went with Abram, had flocks and herds and tents. And they're so rich that the land can't support them. And then verse 14, the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see I give to you and to your descendants forever. And I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, then your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. There already there's an inheritance. The Lord is giving things, giving possessions, okay, giving this land to live in. Now, let's look at Job. I'm sorry that we're go going through this so quickly. It is by necessity. Job chapter 1. Start at verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where do you come? And he gives such a Satan answer. From going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. You know how it is. So the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And Satan says, oh, really? I've never considered him. <laughs> he says, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. What is Satan saying to the Lord? The only reason that Job loves you is because you have given him so many possessions. The Lord has given possessions. Now, lastly, sorry Bill, I know we're over. 1 Corinthians 9. Oh rats, this isn't correct. We might have to forego this, because there's another mistake here. No, it's 2 Corinthians, sorry. 2 Corinthians 9. Would any, is anybody looking for a job as an editor? <laughs> 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 10. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity. There it is, that's the law. If I'm only giving 10% because the law says I have to give 10%, I'm giving out of necessity. 
For God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, you'll always have what you need to support this body and life, house, home, land, animals, clothing, (coughs) shoes, food, drink, all that I have, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Who are your possessions for? Not for you, for your neighbor. I mean, enjoy this life and all the things that it offers. And, you know, you can try to be comfortable in this life, but you don't be attached to those things and you use them for your benefit and for the benefit of your neighbor and have all things in common. They're not private things, even though they are your possessions. As it is written, he has dispersed abroad. Who? The Lord. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. The Lord is not against possessions. How could he be? He gives them to you. And therefore, because he gives possessions to each person as gift, whether they love him or not, because he loves them, he wants that gift that he gives to be safeguarded. He doesn't want the other kids going and taking away the birthday presents at the birthday party. He says, let them have their presents. You'll have your own. Don't you worry. Everybody gets their presents. Just let it be and be content with what you have. All right. We'll see you at the altar.